So, how do you do, sir? Pretty good. It's uh, a strange, strange weekend here. Uh, I don't know when this podcast will go out, but it's Labor Day weekend. We are expecting record heat, not just record heat, but record-shattering heat wave. It's already 95 degrees at 10 a.m. in Ojai, California. It's expecting to get to 110 today Fahrenheit, possibly 115 tomorrow on Sunday, September 6th. I don't think I could function in that kind of heat, man. I, I, I've been living in a gray cloud for 37 <laughs> years of my uh, 66 years have been spent in this sort of gray, rainy place. And yeah, but the gray, rainy clouds of Ketchikan is what makes it so beautiful, and it gives the old-growth forests it the does. thousands of years of, of misty fjords yeah. and fern gullies oh, and just... moss-covered Glades. But just like you, man, you really dig all that California sunshine. But then there's a point where like, oh, I'm dreaming of the rainforest, right? So so I love the rainforest, man. I don't mind the heat. I've taken some Mojave Desert trips in the summer when it's 100 degrees out. And you manage your water. You manage your time. You sit in the shade from 11 to 2 and read <laughs> You know, books on nature. That's when I would read The Silent Spring and I'd read Desert Solitaire and I'd read uh, that fantastic The Island Within, which is which is that book that totally turned me on to Ketchikan before. Well, the Pacific Northwest and the whole uh, uh, Southeast Alaska that totally turned me on. Yeah. Oh, Richard Nelson is the author. He he recently passed away. He was he was a really cool dude. He lived in Sitka for many years. He wrote that beautiful book. When I heard the NPR review of that book, they had a soundscape in the background and believe it or not, it was one of those driveway moments where I pulled my car in and I couldn't do anything until I heard this radio story. And I was frozen in my car because they had the crows and the seashore ambiance. It's exactly what I try to do with this podcast is make you, you are there. Yeah, Richard did a lot of uh, actually soundscapes and recording himself. So, yeah, he was an incredible oh. force here in Southeast. It's real loss for the planet, but... Uh, Richard was one cool guy. I got to hang out with him a number of times over the years. And hey, Dave, I got this this thing that, you know, I'm into fish, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm way deep into fish. And I can't explain this obsession, but I just I moved to Alaska 37 years ago and I tumbled into the world of fish. And soon I know I, what it is. What's that? The reason why you are into fish why? is guilt. It's Catholic guilt from all the fish you killed. That's right. And you just posted a couple of weeks ago, you posted that my second favorite troll drawing, painting of you lying in bed and the ghosts of all the fish you caught and killed are there staring at you yeah. saying, why, Ray? It's a little why? of my Catholic upbringing. I, I love the fish and I kill the fish. I just, I'm tortured by it. But I tumbled into the world of fish and soon I, unbeknownst to me, well, just 
it happened, I, my career was, I found this audience with fish and fishing and all this stuff. And I did a book with my buddy, Brad Matson. Our first one was called Shocking Fish Tales. And then in our second book, I convinced Brad to come along with me and much like with you, whatever we were into paleo stuff, we convinced a publisher that we would do a book at paleontology. So two guys, he's a journalist and I'm the artist guy. And we launched off on a book uh, that later became Planet Ocean, Dancing to the Fossil Record, went on a great road trip together, talked to many scientists. And there was a moment at the L.A. County Museum. I remember this in 1992 or so. That's back when I saw the buzzsaw shark for the first time. But we were sitting with a paleontologist. His name is J.D. Stewart. He was working there at the L.A. County Museum of Natural History at that time. And we were having cocktails with J.D. after we had toured the collection. And he said, you know, Ray, you're into fish do you know that you are a fish? And I was like, what do you mean? And is this a deodorant joke? No, you are a fish. And it's like, you know, this idea that we actually are, I was so into fish that I'd, I'd forgotten it. And if you read your science books, we are fish, man. And, and that's, you know, today's person that we're going to be talking to. I'm hoping to clarify this, this statement. I want to say this statement. We are derived bony fish. We are wayward sarcopterygian fishes. I am waving my fingers here because okay, I'm right, a wait, fish. Wait, 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 Sarcopterygian. I know that I keep messing that word up in, in past episodes to define sarcopterygian again. <laughs> well, it is a particular kind of lobe-finned fish. These are fish that have a bony structure in their fins. They're separate than the other ray-finned fish. Okay, so we're not related to ray-finned fish, well, Ray. We're related to sarcopterygians because to the lobe they fins. have the arm bones. They That's have right. the primordial arm That's bones right. in there. Right, right. Primitive arm bones. But how is it that you cannot... Why is it so surprising that you think or you know we're related to fish? If you go back in the... We're related to single-cell uh, procreotes and, and prokaryotes, or, I think, is there thank so, you. Yeah, something <laughs> like that. Yeah. And the um, other one is eukaryote, yeah, yeah, which has a nucleus, yes. But we're related to those little fellas. Well, we and are related, but then one of the things, Dave, I guess, you know, in these cladograms and these evolutionary trees, it's whether or not you are nested within that group, right? Right. So we right. all have these common ancestors. And then as we split off from them, you know, so it's like the Hatfields and McCoy. You're descended from this group over here. You belong right, to that right. group. You're still, no matter generations down, I'm a Hatfield. You know, yeah. so we and belong to the to the bony fish tribe. Okay, I get it. And when you look at this tree of life, of, of all the organisms that existed and the ones that branch off and die out or don't die out, humans represent only one branch while all the most of it, 70, 80 percent of all these other branches are not us. Right. We're a branch coming off of, of the, well, it's a complicated branch, but along the way, you know, we had a fishy phase. Actually, we are the spawn of tunicates, man. We are, uh, we are tuna wayward. fish. Tuna kits. Tuna fish? No, no, not tuna fish, man. Those are ray fins. Well, what's a tuna kit? It's a sea squirt. What? It's a sea squirt, man. So it's like um, a little warty looking thing that then we are the spawn. And they're actually sort of close to the echinoderms and starfish and all this mind blowing stuff. But sea squirts then become, you know, the, the hint of a backbone is in there. So then there's the fish and there's the bony fish. 
And then there's the ray fin fish, but we are with the we are within the bony fish. The ray fins go over here, and we are with the lobe fins. So at one time we're a bony fish, but then we we branch out into the lobe fish. Yeah, we are with the lobe fins, and the other lobe fin fish that are still around in their lobe fin form are only the coelacanths and the lungfish. And for a long time... But lungfish don't have... Do they have little flipper hand things? Actually, if you look at... I thought they're like long eel-like. Those are the African uh, lungfish and South American lungfish have those sort of eel-like appendages. They're derived. But there's a beautiful one from Australia. Australia, where people know about you, Dave. Don't even try it. I can semi-talk Aussie. <laughs> yeah, our guest is Australian today, so... Uh, He's going to speak heavy Aussie, I think. And, yeah, he does. Um, and I love that sound. But anyways, so the, the lobe fin fish, there's only the lung fish and coelacanths. And it turns out through genetic testing and all that, we're actually closer to the lung fish than we are to the coelacanths. And, you know, you, with the lungfish, if you hold it underwater, you'll drown it, you know? Right. So think right. about that. Well, it is a lungfish. That's right. But then those fish, that group of fish, somewhere in that group of fish, and John knows all about this. We'll find out the particular ones. But that group of fish is what begins to inhabit the swampy areas of the planet and then eventually are up on the land. And those the become water. the early tetrapods, which become the early amphibians. Which means four tetrapods, tetrapods four, four Yeah, and they're they're walking around on land like uh, pteranauts, if you will. So this this coelacanth, which looks like it's it's pronounced colacanth, uh, has these four lobe fins, correct? Yes. And are they literally unchanged for three hundred forty million years, or? Have they evolved over time to kind of look like what they did in the Devonian, but in today's age they look they they they've they've changed a little bit. They evolved in the Devonian and they flourished. There were many many kinds of lobe fin fishes, and there were some that were monstrous, huge. But I'm talking about just the, the coelacanths. They flourished. There were many kinds of them. The modern-day coelacanth looks pretty much like the Devonian coelacanth. But then they disappeared from the fossil record at the end of the Cretaceous. They went with the great mass extinction, and we thought there were none left on the planet at of all. Of course. And yeah. then in 1938... Off of Madagascar. Lady Latimer, off of Madagascar, off of... Uh, Wait, is that a lady or a ship that found it in the net? Uh, it was a, a woman, a nycteologist, uh, uh, Lady Latimer. Oh, she, identif she identified it. Yes, she's the one who right. discovered it. She was actually, it was in a fish market. She said, I didn't know about that. Something, I can't do it. <laughs> Anyways, she's the one who said in the fish market, oh my God, that is a coelacanth. And uh, she did the paper on it. She worked with uh, several people. And actually, I was inducted into a group called the Society for the Protection of Old Fish, Spoof. And as part of being part of Spoof, uh, Lady Latimer, there was, this is a group of ichthyologists. She would write an introductory letter and they send you a scale of a coelacanth and a letter from Lady Latimer. And I actually wow. have that. And I am in wow. the Society for Protection of Old Fish. So this means a lot to me, this guy we're talking today. He's going to clear it up. Yeah. We have an amazing guest on today's show. Oh, and I'm man. laughing right now because I just made a mistake and I'm doing this over. So... <laughs> 
He is, I've been to his office in Australia and in his office, it's a tiny little office, but it has some of the most iconic fossils that we're about to talk about yeah, on the yeah, planet, Yeah, on the planet. Yeah, yeah. You know, the guy is actually technically a paleoichthyologist, certifiable ah. paleoichthyologist means he's a fish guy, prehistoric fish guy, and he's got some way important things you know, that mean a lot to me. I'm, I, and I really am super excited to meet yeah. him. I, I was in his office when he was in L.A. Oh, that's right. He was in the Natural History Museum, L.A. County. He was the vice president there, but he went back home ah. where you are a big deal. And I want to back ask home, him a right? moment. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You can speak at Aussie with him. Our paleo nerd guest today is a celebrated Australian paleontologist whose immense body of work has yielded important insights into fish evolution and the origins of vertebrate reproduction. Now, I'm not reading this, by the way. I just is <laughs> off my head. Well done. He's an award-winning author who's collected fossils from Iran to Antarctica, and he's currently the Strategic Professor of Paleontology at Flinders University in Adelaide, South Australia. And I've been in his office, which I just said, at Flinders University and seen a fossil of a very important fish, which we're going to talk about today. Oh, man, I am so thrilled. Can we, can we call him up, man? I'm, I'm super excited. Me too. Please welcome John Long. Great to be here. Hey, John. Hi. I'm realizing there's one thing. You're a very special, special guest so far on the show because you're the only other person that I know that has actually sat through a David Strassman show. Ladies and gentlemen, David Strassman! <laughs> I have indeed. How is it that, that Dave connects with Australians like yourself? Well, A, he likes fossils and paleontology, but also he's a talented comedian. And so, you know, I actually went to one of his shows many, many years ago before uh, I even knew he was interested in paleontology. Did you? Uh, when was that? Was that in Melbourne? Probably Melbourne, yeah. Here's a tip on Aussie lingo. When you're down under, most Aussies call Melbourne, Australia, Melbourne. G'day, mate. I'm from Melbourne. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So then uh, when I was over there in 2018, um, I, I didn't get to see you, but Dave got to see you, went to your office. And John, just quickly, what's your backstory? How did you become a paleontologist? Well, I suppose I'm like one of those nerdy kids that started collecting fossils at some ridiculously young age. I think I was seven. And the kid next to me at school, um, father used to collect fossils. So we got invited out to collect fossils one day, went to this quarry out the outskirts of Melbourne, a place called Lilydale, and there I found a trilobite. And that was like a most amazing thing because, A, it was Devonian, uh, and it told me that creatures lived hundreds of millions of years ago and that where I was standing was actually under the sea. And that just blew my tiny little elementary school mind. <laughs> That's amazing. That's so, such a great find. It started with a yeah. fossil and that you eventually became a fish guy, totally a fish guy, right? Yeah, well, in those early days, we started collecting fossils from many different sites that were local to the Melbourne district. And we're one of those cities in Melbourne which has all sorts of fantastic fossil sites like Bo Morris, where you can find big shark's teeth, like megalodon teeth if you're really lucky, whale bones and fossil penguin bones and things like that, along with a lot of older sites, you know, with Ordovician graptolites and uh, Devonian trilobites and, and shelly faunas and things. Eventually, we started catching trains out to the countryside and collecting fossil mammals and 
bones of ancient reptiles and dinosaurs and things. And, um, you know, I built up a big fossil collection. But the thing that nobody was working on at the time was fish. Mm. So when I entered university, I went to Melbourne University for a couple of years um, and Tom and Pat Rich had just arrived from America and took up positions in Melbourne. And so these were like the first real vertebrate paleontologists we'd ever had in Victoria. Uh, and so I immediately changed universities and went from Melbourne to Monash to enrol with Pat Rich. Okay. And then she said, um, well, what sort of projects do you want to do? And then um, at the time, another American who was at Monash called Professor Jim Warren had been digging up these amazing Devonian fishes from the mountains of central Victoria. And I'm not just talking scraps or bits and pieces. I'm talking whole, complete fossil fishes wow. in all stages of growth, from larvae through to big fellas. And do you know what? Not a single person was working on them. No. So wow. they gave me a simple project for my honours on Bothery Lepus, this ancient armoured placoderm, oh. you know, a bit like this fella. I know it but, well, yeah. You know, yeah. More boxy kind of thing. And then from there, I had my choice of the whole fauna to work on for my PhD. And every single thing was a new species, a new genus, or a new family. So that's why I got into fossil fish. Wow, that's exciting. Wow. What kind of strata were the Victorian fish in? Were they in mudstones or limestone? Or That's a good question, Dave. They're actually an ancient lake deposit. So they're in black shales that split. You know, with a chisel, they just split like perfect, even sheets. These are freshwater fish, then? Freshwater fishes from an ancient lake, volcanic lake, surrounded by volcanoes. It would periodically erupt and blanket those lakes with ash, which probably killed all the fish, which meant they died as whole, complete fish and got, got buried in the very quiet environment. So they were beautifully preserved, um, and uh, it was a joy to work on them. Well... I want to ask you some fishy questions, and we're going to get to the the uh, the sexier bits a little bit later, if we might. But uh, absolutely. <laughs> but I like to tell people, um, John, that we are more fish than not. Most people can get the connection between us and apes, and they look at monkey. And as you go back a little bit farther, they get a little, it gets a little hazier. And most people are shocked to find out that we really are derived lobe-finned fish. Absolutely. And, and you agree, we are more fish than not, right? Oh, absolutely. In fact, um, people often ask me how my career has gone working on ancient dead fish, you know, how yeah. it's gone so well. And I say, well, for many, many years, I used to just collect dead fish and describe them. And I wrote these like papers that were almost in isolation. And then one day the penny dropped that what I was really doing was looking at the roadmap to the human body plan. Wow. And so from that point on, I started getting every grant I applied for and we got lots of funding and built up teams. And it was really because the essential message I was getting across was we studied these ancient fish because embedded in them is the origins of all the systems, all the anatomical systems that make us human, the beginnings of arms and legs, the beginnings of jaws and teeth, the beginnings of a skull with paired bones, and behaviours too, like the beginnings of breathing, the beginnings of complex sexual reproduction. So all of these things come down to when did they first evolve in evolution? And the answer, more often than not, is in the Devonian. 
Wow, you know, the Devonian is such a, a cool time. If I could travel back in time, that's where I would go to. But, but well, now, what are the what are the the million years? What are the years of the Devonian? Ah, oh, yeah, they started about four hundred nineteen million years ago and ended at three fifty nine million years ago. So it's a pretty long period. Four nineteen to three fifty. Yeah, but somewhere in there, about three eighty, three seventy five. Yeah. There was a very important transition that happened, and this is what I've been, you know, blowing. It's been blowing my mind all these years. There, there was a group of fish, and when I was a young man, much like yourself, John, we were told it was Eustenopteron, the strong low yep. fin fish, that crawled out of the Devonian pool because it was dry and it needed to get to another. That was what Romer and all the other folks were saying. But now that whole yep. story has changed. And you have been really at the forefront of it, and Tiktaalik took the lead for a while as the link between fish and tetrapods right there. Yeah, Tiktaalik is like a salamander type. Kind of. That's it right there. Oh, oh my God, you have the head. Oh. But I do. Bring me the head of Tiktaalik. <laughs> Tiktaalik. No, it's actually a cast, of course. <laughs> of course. The most exciting thing, and, and the news came out as this pandemic started stretching around the planet, Extraordinary news, Elpistostege is now the closest link, and your name is on that paper, and fish had fingers. Yep. So I've been talking for a while. What's that all about, John? Okay. Well, as we know, Tiktaalik, uh, which was discovered by uh, Neil Shubin and Ted Daeschler and Faris Jenkins, was a landmark fish back in 2006 because it revealed so much of the structure of these fish that were almost land animals, they're almost tetrapods. And Tiktaalik was the poster boy for that transition. And it still is a very important fossil, so don't get me wrong. The trouble was Tiktaalik wasn't complete. It had bits missing. And so Elpistostegi was, uh, was known since the 1930s by isolated bits, you know, a bit of a skull mm -hmm. and later on a bit of a snout. But in 2010... A group of Canadians were in Quebec because the site at Migawasha is in, in Quebec. And my good colleague and friend that I work with, uh, Richard Cloutier, was part of the team that excavated an entire complete Elpistostegi from tip of snout to tip of tail. Wow. Every single part of that fish was complete and preserved. Um, it was a bit squashed, but we put it through the synchrotron uh, in which is and the micro CT scanners. Well, the synchrotron and the micro CT are basically an X-ray machine that takes three-dimensional series of slices. And so from that, with the right software, we can build the virtual um, reconstruction. You of, can uncompress it. We do. We can do anything we like. We can uncompress it, and we can actually look inside those squashed flat fins and look at the individual patterns of bones that were present. Now, these are Devonian tetrapods? Uh, these are what we call stem tetrapods, Dave, which are fish on the stem leading to tetrapods. So they're almost tetrapods. In the Devonian. In the, in the late right. Devonian. This is about 380 million years ago. Technically still a fish, basically. but Still a fish because it has fins with fin rays. Right. So technically speaking, a tetrapod has fingers, you know, that don't have fin rays, fingers and toes. But what we discovered with Elpistostegi was that within the pectoral fin, which is the equivalent to your arm, we had a series of bones that grayed out into a series of digits in serial rows, which are exactly the same as the digits in your hand. And indeed, we said they're homologous to the phalangeal bones or digit bones of other tetrapods. But the trouble was they were still embedded in a fin with fin rays on the outside. 
So we had the perfect intermediate condition that one would expect in evolution, that finger bones started in the fish, but they didn't really develop into true fingers until they'd lost those fin rays and the finger bones then became digits, you know, free free form digits. And what is the adaptation that would would it be walking on land? That is why the fin rays disappear and the finger bones become more prominent? Probably. That's our, that's our best guess, shall we say. Um, we know that things like Tiktaalik had enough of those bones preserved in the wrist that it could have supported its weight to probably push the head up. Um, one of the big discoveries that is not just in the, in the fin, but in the head. And when we look at this head here, I'm holding up of Tiktaalik, which is very similar to the head of Elpistostegi. We see these massive big holes right here on either side of the back of the head. And they are actually how the fish was breathing. They were breathing through these spiracles into the buccal cavity that would then swallowed air into the lung. And how do we know this? Well, I discovered a fish from Gogo many years ago called Gogonasus. I actually named it in 1985 because it was only known from a little snout collected by the British Museum expeditions in the 60s. So only having a snout, I called it Gogonasus, which means snout from Gogo. Right. But in 1986, when I had my first big expedition up to this site, which is in the far north of Western Australia, I found a whole complete skull of this fish, Gogonasus. Now, for your listeners out there, why is this important? Well, when we see lots of fossil fish that are squashed flat like pancakes in the rock, Gogo's the opposite. We have whole three-dimensional fish preserved in limestone, which when we put in baths of weak acetic acid, which basically like strong vinegar, it dissolves that rock away and the bones poke out in three dimensions and we apply glue to them. And by repeating that process, we get the whole skeleton out of the rock and it's like it died yesterday. So there's so much anatomy we can interpret from these go-go fishes that we can't get from other sites. So here's the connection then to Tiktaalik and Elpistostegi. One of the complete skulls of Gogonasus that we found from Gogo on another expedition showed it had the same big holes on top of the head. And it got us thinking, well, what are these big holes called spiracles doing on top of the head? So at the time, uh, I moved to America and took up a position in Los Angeles at the Los Angeles County Museum of Natural History. And I started working with a talented team down at Scripps Institute that was led by the late Jeff Graham, who worked on the physiology of air-breathing fishes. And they captured a population of these fish called polypterus, you know, the birch here fish yes, from Africa, yes. and had them in a big aquarium. And they were studying them, and they found that the ancient, the old naturalists that had first collected them, you know, or first observed them in the lakes, had heard this popping, sucking noise coming from the lake at night. And they didn't know what it was, but the team in the lab at Scripps realized they were sucking air in through the spiracles on top of their head, which went directly into their lungs. Wow. So it was proof that these spiracles on top of their head were a direct way of getting air into, into their lungs. So that was the link. That's what blew my mind. And I, I was reading up on this yesterday, and I finally figured out the spiracular breathing you were talking about. Because I look at Tiktaalik and Opistostege, they have flat heads, flat eyes on top. Yep. And, and I was like, what in the hell are the nostrils? But the nostrils are on the underside. Exactly. They're under here. Yeah. So but I was like, how are you breathing if you're poking your head up? And then I realized when I read the paper and I looked at that, they're breathing through the top of their head. 
That's exactly right, Ray. Well, the thing Wait, is, sorry, that... what is the what is the uh, environmental reason that this organism would have to breathe through the top of its head? Obviously, lifting its head out of the water, but why would it form air up top? That's a very good question, but Dave. But we think that this thing was acting a bit like a crocodile, you know, and so they're rising up to the surface of the water, and they're using their eyes, which are on top of their head to sort of spot prey that could be on land, you know, like giant uh, centipedes and things like that that they might like to eat. But at the same time, breathing uh, in fishes is through the gills. But if you're making more and more short forays onto land, you want to get air some other way. And we know that a number of living fishes, like the lung fishes, can actually breathe air or top up their oxygen by taking air in through their, through their lungs, but they have to gulp the air and swallow it. They don't have chest muscles like we have. Neither did these fish. They don't, they don't have the kind of ribs and chest structure that we, you know, they wouldn't have been able to breathe with a diaphragm. So the other way of getting it is through these spiracles that go straight into the back of the throat, and they can suck the air in through their buccal pump mechanism and then get it down into the lungs. That's the only explanation we can think of. Could they also get it through their nostrils and through their mouth if they wanted to? Well, well, we always confuse nostrils with breathing because we uh, humans breathe through our noses. But right. don't forget, what's the original use of noses? To smell. Exactly. <laughs> it's olfaction. It's for smelling things in the water. That's what fish use their nostrils for. And these early tetrapod-like fish were probably still using their nostrils wow. for, for sensing smells and finding food and using the other structures for breathing. There's one other weird thing on top of the head. There's a pineal eye. Is there not a third eye there? Yeah, this thing's got a third eye, a pineal eye, and yeah. that, that carries right through from the very first jawless fishes 500 million years ago right through to um, reptiles, fairly advanced reptiles. And it's believed to be an out-pocketing of the brain that is the pineal organ or parapineal organ. Sometimes it's paired, basically light-sensitive. So it probably orientates creatures which way is up, you know, when they're trying to concentrate on so many other things, especially if you're in dark. You couldn't see behind itself. Yeah, if you're in dark <laughs> or murky water and there's a glimmer. Of... Are there any pineal eyes in any uh, organisms today? A third eye? Yeah, of course. Uh, not an actual eye, but probably an organ, but it's below the surface. A, a light-sensing organ? I believe so, but um, I'm not an expert on reptiles. <laughs> but uh, The tuatara yeah, has one. It, it, it does indeed. Oh, yep. right, yeah. right, right. The New Zealand tuatara. Yep. John, how certain can we be looking at Elpistostege that that's our great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandpa-grandma? Let Grandpa tell you a story. Sit around, everybody. Once upon a time, when I was a little tetrapod in the Devonian 240 million years ago, I was in this swamp, and that's where I met your grandmother. I was sunning myself. Could you feel pretty certain that's... The, the invasion happened once, don't you think? Or multiple uh, times? Or is this is that grandma there that we're looking at? That That's highly controversial. Um, first of all, Ray, I agree with you that it's the closest thing we have on our deep, deep ancestral, you know, ancestry.com by 10 to the 6 kind of thing. <laughs> but uh, to be honest, um, the question of how many times did they invade land is still controversial ah. because we have a disjunct here. We have a beautiful record of these fish-like tetrapods in the late Devonian and early tetrapods appearing just after them, especially from Greenland and North America and, you know, those wonderful sites, Russia, 
a lot of new fantastic work by Per right. Alberg and his team have been revealing that there's there's probably now over a dozen different tetrapods from the Devonian. Wow. Uh, where for many, many years we only had a, a hand, you know, two or three kind of thing. But here's the rub. We have trackways of tetrapods from sites in Poland and sites in Australia and now and sites in Ireland that um, I've been working on with Per Alberg, and they're much older than the earliest remains of tetrapods. Wow, okay. So do we have a missing sort of ghost record of tetrapods here, that tetrapods were walking around. These these are not just any old trackways. They've got clear digit marks. They've got some of them arresting traces of the whole body of the animal on the substrate. But, but yeah. when you say tetrapod, you're talking about an organism with four limbs, Yep. not necessarily an amphibian. No. Well, the earliest tetrapods were amphibians in the loose sense, but not what we'd call the modern amphibia, which, you know, frogs and newts and... and... I mean a transitional animal from yeah. ocean to, to land. Absolutely, Dave. Tetrapod, as you're right, means four arms and legs, and it's that basic pattern. But when we refer to tetrapods in this, in this conversational sense that I'm talking, I mean something with fingers and toes and, you know, an actual walking animal kind of thing. So it leaves a distinct set of trackways, uh, sometimes with tail drag marks, sometimes with... They're swimming and the toes are touching. We've got a whole different range of the way they have moved based on trackway evidence. But the trackway evidence goes much older than the record of fossil bones. So that's the problem. How old are those tracks? How, how much further back do they go? Well, the oldest definite ones that we're confident with are the ones from Poland, uh, from the Zahelmi Formation area, the Zahelmi Quarry, I mean. And they're sort of the beginning of the Middle Devonian. They're sort of about 390 million years or so. The Devonian period, also known as the Age of Fishes, lasted for 60 million years. It's divided into three epochs, or epochs, as Dave keeps saying, lower, middle, and upper. Those three epochs are then subdivided into stages or ages. For instance, the upper or last epoch in the Devonian has two stages, the Frasnian and the Fomenian. Somewhere in there, our fishy ancestors crawled ashore. And the oldest definite bones of these sort of tetrapods are from the, the late Franian. We're talking about 375. So we're talking um, 375 to 390. Yeah, it's about a 15 million year kind of gap. Mm. which is a long time when we've got such a good fossil record and so many sites around the world that, that show these kind of fossils. So maybe we don't have the grandma fish yet. We don't have necessarily the, the whole story. The whole story. Exactly. Ah. That's really mind-blowing. Wow. You do have a fish that is a mother. Yeah. Oh, yes, indeed. <laughs> and, and let me see if I got this right. It's Matter Pisces. Yeah, Martopisis, if it, we use the Latin pronunciation, which just means motherfish. And this, I believe, is one of the greatest discoveries uh, that my team has ever made, and, and I love telling this story. Um, I've been going back to this site, Gogo, because it's such beautiful three-dimensional preservation for many, many years. Describe, yeah. describe the Gogo Reef and where it is and what it was, because it's an amazing yeah. locality in Western Australia, in the Kimberleys. Oh, it's totally amazing. It's just mind-blowing. It's Imagine the Great Barrier Reef with all the water taken away and then just give it a patina of age. 
and then you're walking around these valleys in the desert of northern Australia with these giant cliffs of, of limestone sticking up, and the fossils are still in situ. You know, the, there's corals and there's shells and there's creatures that lived on and about wow. the reef. And then in the basins away from those ranges, we get mudstones where the fish that floated and died and then sunk into the mud became entombed in these nodules. And with erosion over millions of years, the valley floors are littered with hundreds of these nodules everywhere. And so my team comes along and we smash those nodules with a hammer. And if we're lucky, we might find one good fish per person per day. So it's about eight hours work to find one good go-go fish. Mm. But with a team of people there for two or three weeks, we eventually get a good collection together. And I've been going back to this site now for 33 years. The last trip was last year. First trip was 86. So um, 34 years, yeah. So that's basically how my, my scientific career has been built on these, these discoveries at GoGo. So people always ask me, what was your most exciting find ever at GoGo? And it has to come down to the motherfish, ah. Martopisus attenborough-i, because we named it after Sir David Attenborough. Very and nice. he was absolutely delighted and chuffed to have this fish named <laughs> after him. So what was it? It was just an ordinary kind of boring placoderm when we found it. Uh, you know, armoured-plated fish that lived in the Devonian, now extinct. The placoderms were armoured-plated fish that flourished in the Silurian and Devonian periods and then disappeared from the fossil record at the beginning of the Carboniferous period. They were among the first fish with jaws on our planet. They dominated the seas during the Devonian and came in a multitude of shapes and sizes. Bothriolepsis, for instance, was a fairly common genus back in the placoderm heyday. It was a slow-moving bottom dweller that reached about two feet in length, and it looked sort of like a clumsy crab with its long, armored pectoral fins, really weird looking. And then there were the Arthrodires, another order of placoderms whose true rock star member was Dunkleosteus, a massive fish that reached 20 feet or more with huge bony plates in its mouth used to shear its hapless prey apart. Oh yeah. And as it came out of the acid bath, we noticed something very strange. We had the whole fish, including the tail, which is quite rare for Gogo. And in that area of the gut, just behind where the, the head and the, the trunk parts are, we found the remains of a tiny little fish inside it. And we thought, oh, this is interesting. It's its last meal, something it ate just before it died. But then as we, we looked more carefully, we saw it was a, a miniature of the adult, the same species. You know, it had those distinctive tooth plates that we could tell it was the same species and not something else. And then I put it back in the acid very gently with very low dilutions of acid, like about 1% or 2% instead of 10%, what we normally use, for an hour at a time and just very gently peel that last layer away. And what I was able to reveal was an embryonic fish still attached by an umbilical cord to a vug in the rock with crystals that was probably the yolk sac. And... Um, indisputable evidence this was an embryo of mm. the same fish inside the mother. So why was this so important? Well, placoderms are thought to be generally primitive fish at the bottom of the, you know, the evolution of fish tree, as, as you guys know. Having internal fertilization, you know, means that the mother is rearing the young inside her and then giving birth to relatively well-developed pups, like, like sharks do, mm -hmm. or some sharks lay big eggs, as you know, but others give birth to live young. And so this is a fairly advanced kind of reproduction. It's not like your trout sporting in water with thousands of eggs that 
praying that one or two of them will survive to adulthood and carry on the species right. kind of thing. The broadcast spawners In, out there. Exactly. And all your wonderful <laughs> artwork about yeah. spawn till you die and all this, you know. <laughs> Bring it around to salmon and sex, but yeah. Ooh. Go on, yeah. John. This is getting good. Tell us more. So back to the motherfish, the, the really cool thing about it was having these soft tissues preserved that showed these were umbilical structures. And then we realised, we're sitting having a beer at Gavin Young's house, he's another famous fish paleontologist, and it suddenly dawned on me, he said, gentlemen, we have discovered the first fossil F bup bup K. And um, <laughs> I basically said, you're right, Gavin, we've actually discovered the origin of sex here. Wow. Because we were so, you know, happy that we'd found the embryo and that we had internal fertilization. But then the actual act of copulation, you know, internal fertilization where the male deposits sperm inside the female, the only proof you can have of that in a fossil is really to have an embryo inside that animal. And that's what we'd nailed. But don't you have to find the parts, for example, the claspers and um, the cloaca that the, the clasper fits into? The naughty bits. Uh, yes, the, the naughty, naughty bits. bits. Yes. The naughty bits. <laughs> Indeed. Which, by the way, I I've got a little side yeah. note. I've, yeah. I've read your book, Dawn of the Deed, Wonderful. which is the very safe American title, where the actual title of your book is called Hung Like an Argentine Duck. Exactly right, Dave. It's that's the Australian publisher gave that title to it, not me. Oh, but that's because right, the Argentine right. duck has the largest penis of any bird alive today. It's like a normal duck that has normal sized duck with like a forty two centimeter, what's that, in you know, foot and a half length. It's well endowed, yes. Indeed. But I love yeah. Dawn I think Dawn of the Deed is that's a cool title too, man. So Yeah, but... that is. That is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's a great book. But you know, obviously that book you start off by talking about the Argentine duck, and that's why yeah. the publisher uh, mentioned that. But uh so what was the next fossil that showed claspers, the actual male organ that would yeah. have impregnated Yes, yeah. matter Pisces. the prehistoric willy. Yes, the prehistoric <laughs> willy, the the todger, the ancient todger. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, so these fish, the placoderms, like any other major group of animals, have several different, you know, families or orders, if you like. And the tictodonts were the group that the mother fish was, and we'd known since the 1930s that the males and females have different pelvic structures there. But in the 1960s, they realized that this one group of placoderms, the tictodonts, did have claspers on the male. They had sexual dimorphism. That's correct. But only in this one group of placoderms where the vast majority of the placoderms, say that the biggest group are called the arthrodires, the things like big mean Dunkleosteus belongs in, they had never shown any signs of, of male or female differences. So we went on the hunt to find out the rest of the story. <laughs> and it was then that we found another fish in the British Museum collections in London that showed an embryo, and in fact, a couple of specimens with embryos in them. And then we realised there must be claspers in these males. So we went back to the GoGo -Go collection, and there it was, sitting under my nose all along, and I completely missed it. One of my students had even done a thesis on this specimen, and we'd wrongly interpreted this structure as another pelvic girdle, but in fact, it wasn't. It was a clasper, a massive giant clasper with little barbs and hooks on the end, just like you get in some, you know, chimerids and sharks. 
Was there one or were they paired? No, that was one specimen. They're, they're, they're paired structures, obviously. They are paired. Okay, all right. Yeah, but we then went looking through collections in the British Museum and Scotland, and we basically found other examples of common fish like Cacosteus from the Old Red Sandstone and Millerosteus that had these claspers. And fundamentally, all you need is a, a collection where you've got whole, complete fishes preserved and a large number of them, you know, from sites that yield hundreds or if not thousands of these one kind of fish. Because you do need a large population to get those specimens that are perfectly preserved with the tail that, that actually have those structures. And so we wrote a big paper in 2015 that sort of showed that these claspers were widespread through uh, this other group of placoderms. These claspers kind of hang to the back on the bottom of a shark and your organisms. And ratfish. Uh, and ratfish. If you YouTube shark sex, you can see a very good demonstration. Yeah. And these claspers, why are they called claspers? Because they really don't clasp. They are inserted into the female. Well, they kind of do. Yeah. I, do they? Well, they, they, they're in, actually, Ray, you tell, you tell me your uh, interpretation of this one because I don't have a clue why they're called claspers. <laughs> well, I, I, well, if you look at them, just like you were describing, there's little hooks and things all over yeah. the things. And if okay, you look at uh, right. ratfish claspers, right. there's why always... Why aren't they called barbs, I, barbers? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, I think you're right, Ray. I think that's probably where the name comes from. Yeah. Oh. Um, but anyway, the rest of the story is that there was one major group of placoderms, and I referred to Bothrylepis earlier on in this uh, interview, that these boxy sort of fish with bony arms on the side, and these are called the antiarchs. And whenever you do a phylogenetic analysis of all the placoderms, these come out right at the base, you know, as the most primitive of all placoderms. And up until 2014, we knew absolutely nothing about their sexual reproduction. And then a specimens started turning up from private collections, like I'm holding this one in my hand here. This is a little fish from the Orkney Islands <laughs> of Scotland called Microbrachius. And this one here with these big, they look like feet, don't they? Yeah. yeah. Uh, but they're actually claspers on the male, because here is the female. But that's a tiny fish. That's got to be three centimeters long. That's correct. It is small and it had a little tail coming out from the bottom there. Anyway, so we eventually found the claspers of these fish. I had a couple of wonderful trips digging in the Orkney Islands in the remote north of Scotland. That's nice and sunny. Yeah. And this fish was the origin of sex in terms of the most basal member of a phylogenetic sequence to have these organs. And they're absolutely massive. You know, we call this fellow here Big Boy. You know, his, <laughs> his claspers must be like, a third the length of his entire body, you know, so he's very well in <laughs> And they're sideways claspers. They're pointed. Yeah, yeah. So they have big hooks. And so the other mystery with these fish is they have these tiny little arms with the hooks on the arms. And no one knew what, what the hell these arms were for. You know, you could only guess that maybe they propped themselves up on the bottom or something. But we nailed it because with these claspers, how can a fish like this insert that clasper into the cloacal region of the female to deposit sperm unless they have some way of gaining purchase or organizing themselves. Grabbing on. And so these little arms would interlock, you know, like doing the do-si-do, doing the, the square dance, so the male could then move that clasper to the female and deposit the sperm. So we'd even solved what the first ancient sexual position was. <laughs> 
It wasn't the missionary position. It was the side-by-side do-si-do position. The Devonian do-si-do. I love it, man. You're going to write a song about that, right? That's easy to Okay, so why why does evolution favor intercourse over just dropping your your load and running? Yeah, into the water. um, Yeah, yeah, why? What is the evolutionary reason why males develop claspers? And what is that about? I think, personally, it's got to do with the fact that up until then, for like since the origins of fishes almost 500 million years ago, there'd been this standard way of reproducing where it was a lottery. You know, you dump your load and you hope one or two of them survive. But then during the Devonian, there was lots of things happening, lots of changes in the environment, oxygen levels rising and falling, plants starting to take hold on land and, you know, new ecosystems opening up to be exploited. And so there was a far more competition. You know, many groups of fish had appeared and diversified during the Devonian, like sharks like bony fishes. And so there was so much rat race uh, competition in the water that this was a new way of, of, of saying, let's try something else. Let's just invest in a few young that come out ready to defend themselves and ready to sort of uh, not be eaten straight away by something else. And whatever, whatever the reason was, this strategy was adopted by placoderms and it worked. And they became highly diverse and they were kings of the the world during the Devonian. Hey, the placoderms ruled the seas, oceans, lakes and rivers of the entire planet for like 70 million years as the dominant life on Earth. So, and you know, what did they evolve to? Well, they just reached a dead end and died out. Um, like most well, of the dinosaurs. But how, well, then how <laughs> but, was that successful? But they passed on this reproductive method to sharks, and eventually it was acquired so by... So sharks, sharks are related? Yes. Well, we believe placoderms are the ancestors that gave rise to both sharks and bony fishes. There's sort right. of the link. The, the, link the link between them, I right, see. Yeah. Right. So, John- so this method was very successful. And when we look at modern animals like reptiles, viviparity or the ability to have give birth to live young has arisen, you know, more than 100 times in some reptile lineages independently. So now it can be acquired or lost very, very rapidly in evolutionary lineages. So John, your book, your beautiful book, I've actually got both uh, versions of it, uh, The Rise oh, of that's great. The Rise of Fishes, <laughs> just yeah. blew my mind. And actually one of the things I think is really cool about it is you did all the illustrations. Uh, I wouldn't claim all of them, but I did well, most. most of them. Most of them. Uh, yeah. right. you, you do pen just, and ink. I'm a hacker. It's not as good as you, Ray, but I did a lot of the sketches in rotaring pen and then turned the, the clear sort of drafting film over and used coloured rotaring inks on the backside to then get the colour. So most of I those see. little reconstructions of fish are mine, but I also got some fabulous artists like Bill Stout contributed oh, right, some artwork. Right, right, right. It's a great book and uh, easy for a layman like me to understand. And you know what, Ray? It's on my coffee table and yours isn't. Oh, man. That... Ooh. <laughs> oh, throw some shade there, man. I've got... Uh... I've got uh, Ray's book right behind me, the one at Cruising the Fossil Highway. I see it right that's over a, there. That's a fabulous book. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank, do you have uh, the Fossil Coastline book, by the way, the latest one with Johnson? I don't. I think you guys sent me a PDF of it. That's right. But yeah, uh, yeah, I yeah. haven't got the hard copy. Uh, we'll but, make that uh, right. We'll make that right. Speaking of coastlines, you have gone to the one continent I have not been to, and that's Antarctica. And I was reading Mountains of Madness your book you wrote about your experience there. And uh, I've been to Barrow, Alaska in winter, so at the edge of the Arctic sea ice. 
nothing like Antarctica, uh, but I well, do have an idea of the cold and how being out there in 30 seconds could kill you. Yeah, in midwinter maybe, but I was lucky to be there. I had four trips to Antarctica starting in 1988 and then a big three-month sledging expedition in 1991-92 where we, we actually, the old-fashioned way of doing it, where you dropped in by... Across Darwin Glacier. Yeah, dropped in by Hercules aircraft and we had our sledges and our skidoos with tents and we lived for nearly three months just sledging mostly through unknown territory that hadn't been explored by humans before. But when you were crossing Darwin Glacier, weren't you worried? I, I read that you were you were sliding, the, the, the sledges were sliding yep. on the blue ice. Yeah. Weren't you worried about crevasses and falling oh, down? Sh- sure was. <laughs> uh, there was never a moment of, uh, you know, not being worried out there. there. For me, it was the first time I'd been on a, a deep field sledging expedition because the expedition before that was mostly in dry valleys. But... So it was full of like unexpected crevasse fields. Suddenly we're in a crevasse field. We've got to walk very slowly and probe the ground in front of us. There were times with avalanches that buried me up to my neck on a, on a mountain slope. And, and once when I nearly fell through a crevasse, I just broke the, the surface but threw myself to the left. Oh, man. seen uh, via Facebook you've been there more recently too and you're going for Devonian stuff yep. right is that you looking for are you looking for lobe fins or what yep exactly that Ray um, I had two expeditions down there with uh, Neil Shubin and Ted Daichler and the US logistics team staying at McMurdo and that was out in the Transantarctic Mountains where Gavin Young and Alex Ritchie had been collecting back in the 1970s do you need a Sherpa <laughs> yeah there's so many people that want to come along on these trips but Unfortunately, the logistics decrees, they can only be very small teams of, you know, five, six people at the most. And one of those persons has to be a survival expert, you know, the mountaineer that That's keeps me. you I'm alive. That's me. I'm from Alaska. Ah, right. Are there <laughs> any lobe fins to be found down there? Yeah, well, I can. And we found a number of new sites in the Mount Fleming area, which were very exciting. And we got a lot of new species from there, which include placoderms and uh, lobe fin fish types. Um some with complete skulls and brain cases. So, yeah, we got the goods. We got some very interesting stuff, but we obviously I can't reveal much on that until we till we write it up. So you do have some stuff. Ah. We've got some wonderful stuff that we're working on. All of this material will be is deposited in Philadelphia in the museum there eventually. That's its home. Besides matter Pisces with the embryo, what is your most incredible fossil moment? that blew you away in your life? What is the find? Well, in terms of not so much, it wasn't the most important scientific find in my life, but in terms of the the happiest moment of finding a fossil, I think it comes back to to sharks. I was at GoGo in 2005, and sharks were one group that were completely missing from the whole GoGo fauna, despite 60 years of collecting by British museums and Australian expeditions. And then it was on this one moment that I split a rock and it was a small nodule and it opened up and I saw this jaw and then I got my hand lens and I saw these little teeth everywhere with, with, with multiple cusps. I knew we'd found the very first shark from Gogo ever and I knew that once that specimen was prepared we'd have a three-dimensional sort of set of bones of a shark and, you know, unfortunately it wasn't complete. It didn't have a brain case but it had enough of the bones, the shoulder girdle, the jaws and all the teeth many scales that we're able to make a really good 
uh, paper out of it. So that was the most incredibly happy moment of finding that shark after no one else had ever found one. It's a little little guy then. It's, a, it's in a nodule. Um, we called it Gogo Salakis. He was little. He was about a foot a foot and a half in length. And since then we found... Well, how big are the nodules? Well, the nodules can be anything from the size of your thumbnail to uh, almost three feet across. But the really big ones don't have anything in them. They tend to grow uh, around... They they all grow around something organic. It might be a bit of algae or a bit of tissue or something. But most nodules contain absolutely nothing in them that you can visibly see with your eye. Is that a chemical property of, of limestone dissolved in the ocean to, to create nodules? Well, this was a particularly special, it was a tropical embayment with supersaturated calcium carbonate in the water and a euxinic layer of hydrogen sulfide in the water column. And we know this because the chemistry has been studied that that's how the nodules formed. As the dead fish fell down through that layer, it started a chemical process that... But the hydrogen sulfide is caused from living creatures, right? From algae? That's right. Well, there are lots and lots of algae probably living. That reef was an algal stromatoporoid reef. It wasn't a coral reef like today's reefs. Okay, let me explain a couple things. A eucinic layer spelled E-U-X-I-N-I-C. Yeah, I know means a layer of water that is both anoxic and sulfuric. Anoxic meaning no oxygen, and sulfuric, as John said, saturated with hydrogen sulfide. Both together slow down or even stop the process of decay in a dead organism. And an algostromotoporoid reef was more like a bunch of sea sponges rather than the coral we know and love and are currently bleaching at the moment, but that's another story. So there's been lots of papers written on the chemistry of how these fossils form. And some of the really amazing work we're doing at the moment, my very first PhD student, Kate Trinajczyk, who's now our Dean of Science over at Curtin University, is leading a project on soft tissue preservation in go-go fish. And this is amazing. We've got soft organs and stuff there that, you know, this hasn't been published, but it's in the system at the Uh, moment, shall we say, being submitted. You know, all sorts of amazing soft organs in these fishes are about to be revealed. How remote is the go-go? Is it easy to get to or is it quite an expedition? It's in the far north of Western Australia. It's not far from the town of Fitzroy Crossing, um, about an hour away from Fitzroy Crossing. But you need, you know, it's hard to get on those sites without the right permissions and the right access which I like it that way because this is such an important site. We want to keep they're, it. They're protected then. That's good. They're protected, yeah. yeah. So let me ask you this, John. If you could get in the old time machine, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> when when would you go back to? What what time period would you go back to and what would you want to see? Ah, definitely the Devonian. All right. And I would want to see that first tetrapod, you know, walking around in the swampy water. Uh, on land, you know, you know, I want to see how well adapted to the terrestrial life it really was. Uh, you know, maybe half fish, half tetrapod kind of thing would be would be fun to see. Actually, I did this in one of my books many years ago. I wrote three children's novels about, oh. um, you know, books for kids. And the first book was called The Mystery of Devil's Roost about a, a cave. And these kids got into the cave and it had indigenous art paintings of placoderms and dinosaurs on the walls. And then all sorts of shenanigans happen. Crystals light up and lightning strikes. They emerge and they're in the Devonian <laughs> and they have to, they have to survive. And it's not just 
oh, this is a pretty harmless place. There were these really large arthropods attacking them and everything. It was Eurypterids. <laughs> and they caught a Bothrylepis, cooked it and ate it. They like, <laughs> cracked the little arms and it tasted like lobster, you know. So that was me indulging my fantasies in that book. I've time traveled back to that in my mind as well, but I thought I'd be pretty safe. There, there's not really much up on land to kill you other than maybe an occasional uh, big sc- uh, scorpion. But Yeah. So, John, what do you think was the first creature to exit the ocean, to leave the ocean for land and populate land? A a eurypterid? No, well, we know that eurypterids and also these other arthropods called euthycarcinoids were able to walk on land uh, away from the sea as far back as the Cambrian. You know, uh, the euthycarcinoids, at least, not the eurypterids. But, Are there um, trace fossils of that? There... Yes, there are. There's Cambrian and Ordovician trace fossils of these arthropods walking on land. And early millipede-type creatures, you know, there's lots of those. So it was definitely the arthropods that not only invaded land, but then later became the first invertebrate group to develop flight. Yeah, yeah, that's right, the flying insects. John, actually, this Devonian world, I live in a place where it rains a hell of a lot. This summer, it's raining a lot. Yeah, That original uh, scenario of our uh, fishy ancestors crawling from dried up hole to the next little watering hole, we've thrown that out. Was that Devonian world that animals like Elpistostege, was that kind of a, a soggy, wet world where there was little difference between being below the water and above the water? What kind of world was that, Was do you think? Or do we know that environment? What is it, what is it like? Well, the whole of the Devonian, as we've said, was nearly 70 million years or so long, so it was a long period of time. But let's talk about the late Devonian right. when the fish were evolving into tetrapods. And we had high levels of sea level rises. We had fairly warm temperatures, uh, fairly humid. Most of these tetrapod-like fossils are found close to the equator, but we do have one or two found near the Antarctic Circle in South Africa. So we know they were widespread geographically as well. But, uh, yeah, it probably did rain a lot. Um, we had periods of drying out as well with red mm. beds and oxidized uh, deposits. So I think, like today, Ray, you can't blanket it with one kind of idea of what the climate was like. True that, yeah. It was subdivided from tropics to high latitude areas like today and probably different climates in different places. Mm. Yeah. So what is the organism that is before claspers? Mm-hmm. And is there any transitional fossil that shows no claspers, a bud, a bigger bud? Whoa, claspers, or do they just suddenly appear in the fossil record? So that's a great question, Dave. But we did describe a fossil from Canada, from Miguasha, called Euphanerops, which was a jawless, eel-like fish. And it had a pelvic structure and a, and a bud there, which we think was probably the ancestor of the first claspers, but we're not 100% convinced. And the referees were pretty dubious. So we can't say for sure it is, but we can suggest that that's what this structure might be. So that was working with Marion Chevronet and Richard Cloutier from Canada. And it's in the journal Paleontology, so to 2018. The, the proto-willy, as it were. Hey, yeah, possibly. I just find that evolution... You know, so many adaptations evolve and they usually appear to us quickly in the fossil record, but they've taken millions of years to develop. Mm. For example, Ray and I were talking about how the halibut started with two eyes, one eye on either side of the head, and then over time migrated to having two eyes on one side of the head. Where is that transitional fossil with the eye right at the, at the nose, right at the tip. I, be, I, believe, I believe Matt Friedman from Michigan has found that fossil and described it. 
No way. Uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. All right. Talk to Matt Friedman. You should do a paleo nerd session with him and he'll tell you all about it i know matt we'll find him we'll find him so the point i'm making is so many fossils we're missing so many things there there it just yeah. isn't a smooth transition from no. one evolutionary adaptation to the next i know it sucks doesn't it but <laughs> us paleontologists are there to to find new things and we're never going to find those missing gaps unless we keep going out into the field and keep hunting for fossils wow. and you never know some of those gaps might we might close them a little bit more by finding another new piece of the puzzle but we might never find some of them but we can still reconstruct the story based on the anatomy and development of living organisms and what we know from the fossil record and at the end of the day that's the best we can do Besides being a pretty cool motorcycle uh, riding paleontologist, you're an educator, you've penned children's books, you've even lent support to litigation against Trump, who was trying to reduce the area of the beautiful Grand Staircase Escalade National Monument. Thank you for uh, helping that. I I ask this question to all my guests, um, but I'm excited to ask it to you because of your vast experience and how many books have you written? 30? Oh, yeah, something like that, yep. (laughs) Science is under attack, mostly because social media is in everyone's lives and now more than ever, people are labeling facts they don't agree with as fake news, okay? Mm. John, what can you do as a paleontologist and educator to help promote science and educate people that opinions and facts are two separate things? That's a really, really difficult situation we're in right now, Dave, that you've hit the nail on the head that it's, it's not just fake news. It's the lack of respect for authority. You know, that, that people who are experts, professors that have studied one thing all their life can be overturned by an opinion or rhetoric, uh, in a, in a political sense. What can we do? All we can do is not be silent. We have to stand up at every opportunity to correct people who make false statements about climate change, about science, about anything, you know, and stand up for the truth and stand up, go out, talk to as many people as possible, write books, give lectures. You know, we do all that as best we possibly can. What else can we do? I mean, we can only teach our students well and, you know, in the classroom, educate a new uh, generation to respect knowledge. And it's not just science. Um, I believe that knowledge is the most important issue here. The humanities are also incredibly important. Science can provide the answers to a lot of things, but we can't put them into train without the rhetoric, the policy, and the humanities to see the, those solutions carried through. So I think knowledge is under attack everywhere at the moment. And the only thing we scientists can do is just fight as vigorously as we can and stand up and not be silent. Amen, sir. Well said. Well said. Do you see the same problem uh, down in Australia? Do you have doubters and to a lesser extent? Yeah, uh-huh. we have. We have. You know, a, a large uh, community. The that... toilet paper hoarders. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's right. Well, when the when the when the virus struck, of course, there was lots of misinformation. There's still a bunch of crazy people out here. Yes, I'm going to say it. That you know don't believe in the virus and think it's a hoax or I uh, think 5G is causing it and all of that. Plandemic. <laughs> but they're very much a small minority. And, of course, people have the right to believe in what they want, but when they try and force it down other people's throats, that's when you've got to stop them. And so what's up with the motorcycles? <laughs> well, uh, as, you, as you just said, I've been a keen motorcyclist all my life. I've been riding bikes since I was 17. I've got a, a Moto Guzzi V7 at the moment. 
And I had this crazy idea a while ago to write a book about the patterns we see in evolution as told through the eye of the motorcycle hmm. in terms of its history and development. And, you know, there's so many parallels that, you know, the laws of evolution, like Coke's law, why did things get so big? You know, and I looked at motorcycles and you take your average Harley Davidson, for example, the first V-twin Harley Davidson came out in 1909 and it had like, um, you know, what we say, a 750cc engine. But now the average Harleys are up, you know, they're 1,700ccs or 1,800ccs. <laughs> They've gradually gotten bigger and same with many other bike manufacturers is it Cope's law? Well, so I explore that in, a, in an academic sense. Well, they both come down to the same answer. And, you know, dinosaurs got bigger in a greenhouse world back in the Jurassic and early Cretaceous. An abundance of resources is one theory. I know there are other theories about why dinosaurs got so big. But you look at motorbikes and it's a similar kind of scenario that post-World War II, there was a lot more disposable cash as, as the economy picked up. And people had more money and the buyers of motorcycles demanded bigger bikes. So it created an arms race between the manufacturers to make bigger and bigger bikes that actually didn't actually have a lot more power necessarily or couldn't go any faster, but they were just bigger, you know. Wow. And so I've been looking at all sorts of trends in evolution, uh, the origin of breathing and, and the microevolution where we have you know, tissues evolve in organisms in different ways, different kinds of dentine in fish teeth and so on. And we have different kinds of alloys and, and structures that affect uh, automotive design. Uh, I've been looking at uh, the fish tetrapod transition as my favourite, because if we look at the fish that we we're just talking about, Tiktaalik and Opistostegi and the early tetrapods, the skulls are almost the same. There's virtually no change. What is changing, though, as we've talked about, is the limbs, you know, the fin to limb transition. And it's the same with motorbikes going from on the road to off-road, like the Paris-Dakar rally. The engine, the part that drives it forward, the head equivalent, if you like, doesn't change at all. But the frame and the structures in touch with the substrate have to evolve rapidly. And so it's the same parallel story there with fishes and tetrapods with off-road motorbikes. From your study of motorcycles, have you created any new hypotheses about evolution? <laughs> Not yet, Dave. I'm still working on the parallel <laughs> stories, of which there are many. I've got like a book with 18 chapters of exploring this. And in the end, we're looking for a big picture. Why? Why do this? What's the point, you know? Is it just fun or me, you know, playing with motorbikes and evolution? No, I think it comes down to something more intrinsic. It's about knowledge and how we view knowledge systems and the parallel structures that are put in place to observe these patterns. So, you know, that's going to be the big reveal at the end of the book. And we're also in production with a TV series. So we've been shooting some sizzle clips of late, uh, <laughs> me riding motorbikes through the Flinders Ranges, visiting fossil sites and uh, at museums, wow. talking to dinosaurs. So, that's, yeah. that's cool. I like how you tied that back into the education thing. That's really cool. Wow. That's one of the places I've, you know, I've driven by the Flinders Ranges and oh, one of my one of my desires is to spend a night in Wilpena Pound. You've got to go there. It's just so stunningly beautiful, amazing place. It's a it's almost an amphitheater, Ray. Wow. Of yeah, and it's just your beautiful classic Australian environment with the gum trees and the kangaroos and the emus and yeah. And to get there, you go past the famous Ediacara fossil sites, and there are now tours to those sites. Ediacara. Are there? Yeah, you can go to Ediacara. It's right near Wilpena Pound. It's not far away. <laughs> okay, that's we had a little thing here yeah. <laughs> about uh, how do you pronounce Ediacaran, Ediacaran? Uh, it's like Diplodocus, Diplodocus. I mean, oh, yeah. who cares? It's I call it Ediacara. 
Ediacara. Ediacara. Yeah. Okay, I want to ask you about the Ediacara fauna. Do you believe that they were animals or were they plants? I believe they were probably animals, primitive metazoan animals of a sort. Uh, We have things like Kimberella that show evidence of rasping, radula-like structures. And we have other evidence now of small animals burrowing in the Ediacaran uh, sediments, not down, but uh, horizontally through the layers. So uh, there was definitely some movement possible with some of those creatures. Is that from the Flinders locality? Because I know there's Ediacaran strata all over the world now. Yeah, we, we have an active team here in the South Australian Museum uh, Jim Galing and Mary Droser, of course, from California that comes out every year. I've seen Dickinsonia in uh, the yeah. museum there. Yeah, we have the giant one, the one-meter-long yeah. Dickinsonia rex. Wow. King <laughs> of the Ediacarans. I like it. I love it. Yeah. Hey, Dave, if you ever get to do another tour down there, can I, like, uh, pack your bags, man? I want to go to all these places. We I- should all go together up to the Flinders Ranges. We will. We will. Done. Oh, no, we will. Yeah. Done. On motorbikes. You guys can be soft and take a car. I'll be on the sidecar, John. Yeah, the sidecar. Right. I'll be the sidecar guy, too. <laughs> cool. I can fit three on a motorbike with a the sidecar. There we go. There we go. That's right. a vision. Well, John, thank you so much, and uh, hopefully uh, we'll we'll meet you in your office down there. And uh, uh, where is Matter Pisces right now? Uh, it's in the West Australian Museum because it's a holotype. Right. And it's going right. to go on display when the museum opens its brand new galleries in November this year. Hey, how big is that little creature? Is it just a little guy? Matter Pisces was probably about a foot long. Oh, okay. Good, oh. good to know. All right. Yeah. And uh, these are my fingers, right? Yes, yeah. fingers. Fingers. And as Neil Subin said... Big bone, two bones, lots of little bones. I'm pointing to my upper arm, my middle arm, and then my hand. Lots exactly of little bones. Right. I have a strange affinity for you, John. Affinity. Anyways, thank <laughs> okay, you. Get out of here. That's it. <laughs> You're clasping at straws here. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Hey, well, thanks, John. This has been a t- total blast. Yeah. Man. yeah. Yeah, it's been fun. Thanks, guys, for inviting me. So that was an amazing interview with John, wasn't it? I was blown away. I, I learned so much in that uh, in that discussion with him, and it was so cool to be talking to somebody on the other side of the planet, down under. Yeah, yeah. But you you are a fish guy, Ray. So what what did you learn that you didn't know already, or or kind of? Know? I mean, you certainly could well, pronounce the ichthyostega. Wait, ichthyo. How do you say? Elpistostege. Uh, That's it. Elpistostege. That sounds like an Italian dish, doesn't it? Elpistostege. You know what that actually means? It means hope from a skull. Really? Actually, yeah, it's actually weird. Because when they first found it, they realized, hey, this is either this is an early tetrapod, amphibian-like animal, or maybe it's a fish. And they found little chunks of it. But it was only 10 years ago they found that complete one. And that's what John did his paper on, but uh, about the fingers. But what blew me, well, the thing that I learned in that program, the aha moment was when he said, he talked about uh, the spherical breathing, these two holes Two holes are covered by membranes, and they're pretty large in these these ancient fish. And there is a modern-day aquarium fish that actually has got pretty ancient-looking. And he was talking about how they did experiments with, uh, it's called a polypterus or a bicher or biker. And people have in the aquarium trade, they're found in Africa, but these fish actually come up to the surface and they just kind of come to the top of the water and they breathe through these little membranes. And that's what these ancient fish had. And that's, El Pistostege had that, man. 
So anyways, that was really, uh, that was an epiphany with the Elpistostege spiracular breathing. Yeah, Elpistostege. He held the head up or was that Tiktaalik? That was Tiktaalik. Okay, so we're going to have pictures of that on his webpage at our paleonerds.com on the John Long page. And we're also going to have photos of that little tiny fish with the giant claspers that are that look <laughs> like a cartoon character. Yeah. The claspers yeah. is bigger than the body there. Yeah. So you can see those photos at paleonerds.com on the John Long page. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, well, that was Very awesome, cool. Ray. That was awesome. And uh, we've yeah. got some amazing guests coming up. So, Oh, uh, man, as always, yeah. you know, this this thing is working. We're talking to some very cool people. Yeah. So, yeah. Will you come down to Australia with me? I'm inviting you to come down to Australia, to South Australia, where we will go camping in the Flinders Ranges and hear the sounds, the night sounds of the Australian bush. Yes, and the the lonesome dingo. Yes. Don't want your dingo to be eaten by... Yeah. Don't even try an Australian accent. All right, I won't. Anyways, my bags are packed. All right. I would love to go, Dave. I'm there with you, man. G'day, mate. G'day. Thank you for listening to Paleo Nerds. Make sure to like and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you're listening. If you want to learn more about what you heard today, check out our website, paleonerds.com. You'll find tons of pictures and links, including photographic evidence that today's guests and your hosts have been paleonerds for a long, long time. Again, that's paleonerds.com. Thanks for listening. I'm a paleo nerd. I'm a paleo nerd. I'm a paleo-